This is the Hockey News Podcast. The time has finally come. Get ready to open Upper Deck Series 1 and elevate your trading card collection with young gun rookies like Brock Faber, Luke Hughes, Marco Casper, and Matthew Nyes, just to name a few. Be on the lookout for a new one-of-one base set parallel called Outburst Gold. Don't walk, run to your local hobby shop, or get it from UpperDeckStore.com today. Welcome to the Hockey News Podcast, brought to you by Upper Deck. I am Ryan Kennedy, joined by Michael Trakos. And Mike, unfortunately, we lead off with some very sad news. Uh, Obviously, at this point, hockey fans have heard about Adam Johnson uh, tragically dying during a game in England. And I think the, the big sort of issue that we're, we're facing right now is neck guards, should mm-hmm. they be mandatory in pro hockey? Uh, the league in England has already said it will become mandatory, but they will have a grace period just for supply chain issues because obviously demand is going to go up quite a bit uh, after this incident. But just wanted to get your thoughts on neck guards and where do we think NHLers in particular are with this this issue because right now it's not mandatory and it's uh, certainly not common yeah you know it's it's kind of funny that it's not mandatory already and I remember talking to my wife just uh, when this news broke and she's like they don't wear neck guards like you'd be surprised at how hockey players go from a certain age where you know my kid wears neck guards I wore neck guards when I played yep. and then you get to a certain age and it's all of a sudden it's like okay you go from the full cage and then you go to a half visor mm-hmm. um, you go from having a neck guard and then you just you ditch that completely mm. so it's not like they're not used to it and if that argument was you know hockey players are just not used to wearing neck guards they've never worn neck guards and now you're asking them to wear it that'd be one thing but mm. the fact is like they go up until like they're what maybe 14, 15, 16 years old, wearing all this protective gear, and now you're taking it away. Just let them just keep wearing it. Yeah, and I get the sense, too, just, you know, from from being around the room uh, the other day that this really spooked players in the NHL, particularly veterans. Mm. And I, I think that they would probably at this point... You know, I, I can't speak for them, but I think they would almost welcome if it was mandatory because then it would take the decision out of their hands. And I think the options that they would have, not only now, but in the near future, would probably get more desirable where, you know, you talk about the comfort factor, but if it was, you know, some kind of reinforced turtleneck, you know, we've seen uh, sort of tactical wear for, you know, wrists and things like that uh, so players don't get cut. It's not, com- it's, not as, it's not as cumbersome as anymore. It's not like you're right. like Better Call Saul where you've got that big totally, neck protector. Totally, totally. You're coming off a neck injury. Like, this is basically Under Armour type wear. Right. And then let's not forget, like, we're a year removed from Evander Kane getting his uh, wrist basically slashed by escape blade. Yeah. So I think this is very much, yeah, when you said uh, hockey players are kind of spooked by this, it's, mm-hmm. it's not a one-time thing anymore. It's not yeah. like... Well, I can remember growing up and seeing Clint Malarchuk getting that's his right. uh, neck slashed, and you're yeah. thinking, okay, that was a fluke, and that's a one-in-a-million shot. 
the fact that it's happened two years in a row now. Yeah. Granted, and then Richard Zednick before that. Yeah, so let's face it, like hockey blades are sharp. Yeah. Um, they've, it's not like this is anything new. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that it's happening a little bit more frequently and like I said, the, the protection is not as cumbersome anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not like we're saying add on something that's going to be a little uncomfortable. Yeah. This is basically like a, a mock turtleneck. Totally. Yeah. And it's going to be very interesting to see uh, what happens from here on out because I, I, think players, I think players today also are very much more aware of safety uh, than back in the day where, I mean, let's face it, you know, even though helmets themselves were grandfathered in, like Craig McTavish was the last player not to wear a helmet. And you're looking at, you know, Bill Masterton, again, another tragedy on ice way back in the day. That was what sort of spurred helmets. And it took literally like a couple of decades before everyone was wearing them. I feel it's different now where I think players are a lot more aware of their bodies and, and take care of their bodies more. So, Well, even like, let's look at the Ryan O'Reilly um, playing now for the Nashville Predators. Mm-hmm. One of the few remaining guys not wearing a visor. Uh, you could arguably argue that he's probably the last of the remaining like top line or top six forwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe Jamie Benn is another one. Yeah. Um, but there's not very many left now that mm-hmm. are wearing it. If they are, it's like a, a Ryan Reeves type, um, someone who's probably an enforcer or a right. fourth line player. Uh, you don't see too many star players wearing that, which tells you, you know, th- these guys are like a Connor McDavid's able to score and do whatever he's able to do on the ice. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is, we've got the, uh, the Hockey Hall of Fame uh, inductions are gonna be coming up in November. Mm-hmm. That's generally a chance for all the general managers to meet in the meeting. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if this is first and foremost on everyone's mind when they come mm-hmm. to meet. Oh, very good point. Um, gonna transition now to some on-ice news. Over here, Charlie McAvoy has a phone call with the Department of Player Safety after a headshot against Florida on Oliver Ekman Larson. You know, we saw the NHL come down with a four-game suspension to kick off this season. What do we think happens with Charlie McAvoy? Was it as bad as the hit that felled Patrick Laine? This one was bad. I don't know about you. Um... On one hand, it's Charlie McAvoy, who's not known for those kind of hits. Right. At the same time. But a hard hitter, nonetheless. He is a hard hitter, I guess. Um, And neither was Rasmus Anderson, for that matter, on the line I hit. I wouldn't wouldn't think that it would be Charlie McAvoy doing this at the Mm. same time. And, yeah, it was egregious. Um, Looked really nasty. Obviously, Ekman Larson, he didn't see him. Pure elbow to the head. What, What did you make of it? To me, it felt like after Rasmus Anderson got four games... It, it felt like when I saw that one, I was like, well, you're getting at least four, if not five. At the time, I was like, maybe more. But now we know, based on the fact that it's a phone call, that it's five-game maximum. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's five. It, it would be interesting to hear McAvoy's defense. Um, but on first blush, it, it feels like a five to me based on the fact that Anderson got four. And everybody saw that Anderson <laughs> got four. Like, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, I, I just wonder McAvoy's history. Like, I don't think he's... This isn't Brad Marchand. This isn't Nazem Kadri doing this. Yeah. This is a guy that I don't think is... Like, correct me if I'm wrong. Has he had a similar incident? I can't think of one off the top of my head. 
Yeah, so that's got to play into it. The fact that we're talking about a guy who's probably a Norris Trophy candidate at the end of the year yep. um, shouldn't play a factor, but it does. Let's face it. Right. Um, and the fact that it's just it's so far out of his element. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how the, the NHL comes down on this. Uh, obviously, you said it's a phone call hearing, so they're not going to go as hard as probably people want. Yeah. It will be interesting, though, to see what the result is, just to see if they kind of build on the Anderson suspension. Because, you know, I mean, ultimately you want to keep players safe and mm-hmm. you want to be sending a message when you have to suspend somebody. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. Um, the Calgary Flames, <laughs> they are in free fall. And, you know, we had the, the outdoor game, the Battle of Alberta, on the weekend. Uh, two teams that really hadn't won much. Uh, now the Edmonton Oilers came out ahead in that game. The Flames lost. They're on a pretty bad losing streak right now. What is the problem here? I mean, Nikita Zadorov had some pretty pointed comments the other day where he was saying, well, you know what? Last year we could blame Daryl Sutter, <laughs> but he's not here to blame anymore and we're still bad. Um, so what do you, what do, you do? Oh, I don't know. Feel the flames. It's five games and counting right now for the Flames. Yeah. I didn't peg this team as a playoff team. I thought they were going to be fighting for a playoff spot, so I can't uh. be completely surprised. This isn't like, you know, I was more surprised that Edmonton was kind of in that same sort of caliber of sure. team going sure. in. Um, but that was a defining moment for both Edmonton and Calgary going into that uh, outdoor game. And I thought, okay, one of these teams is going to get out of the slump. Um, maybe both of them are going to shake off that rust and uh, put forth a great effort, but just awful. Um, mm. And you know what? It, it starts with the star players. I know you're saying you, know, you, you don't have the excuse of not having Sutter behind the bench, but you look at Nazem Kadri right now. One goal, two points through nine games. He's a mm. minus 11. I know Huberto's getting a lot of heat as well. He's got five points in nine games, but if you're Nazem Kadri, like you've got to find ways to impact the game. Yeah. And obviously, you're getting paid as much as he's getting paid. It can't just be, you know, getting under the skin of Evander Kane as he was trying to do in that outdoor game. It's uh-huh. got to be, he's got to be producing. Um, simple as that. So I know you're joking that this is a team that could, you know, come out of this with uh, with Max Celebrini. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's maybe that's the best landing spot for him. You know what? I kind of wonder. I mean, the Flames, I think they've got some decent prospects. And, you know, Matt Coronado is, is a player that uh, has quickly come up the pipeline already. But I think, you know, looking back at last year was obviously super chaotic for Calgary, where you had Markstrom, he was just completely off in net. And that really kind of hobbled them. And, of yeah. course, you had Daryl Sutter, uh, who had clearly lost the room. But I really think it goes back to the fact that they had to trade Matthew Kachuk. And here's a question. Should they have... No, they, they had to trade Matthew Kachuk. It got to that point where yeah. you lose Goudreau, you lose Kachuk, and it's just you got to like, get okay, something back. You got, okay, so you got to get something back. Yeah. And True Living at the time, who was their GM, said, you know what, I'm going to try to just come out of this the same or a little bit worse or whatever. Yeah. Should he have... Instead of getting Mackenzie Weger, Nazem Kadri, and Jonathan Huberto as the so-called replacements for yeah. Kachuk and Kat, or, uh, Goudreau, uh, should he have gone for futures? Looking like Now we can look back and say, you know what, where they are in terms of their prospect pool, mm. um, where they are in terms of you're going to be going up to the Oilers night after night yeah. in terms of that division. Should they have gone for more you know, 20-year-olds and maybe some picks and prospects? 
I'm going to say no because at the time you still thought you had a Vesna caliber goalie in Jacob Markstrom, right? Like, yes, you know, what they had that you, bad series have, against though? Edmonton. Well, like I defensively, mean, you've got what a Chris Tanev. Yeah, who I don't know. I'm a big Chris Tanev fan. Noah Hannafin. And Noah Hannafin was looking good. And Rasmus Anderson. And don't forget Oliver Shillington, who you know has been taking time uh, to address his own mental health. Yeah. When he was in the lineup, he was awesome. Especially against McDavid, because he could skate with McDavid defensively. So when I looked at that team, it's like, okay, well, there's something pretty good here. And then unfortunately, Goudreau's gone. You got to deal Kachuk. When that deal happened, I was like, ooh, Florida's going to rue the fact that they had to give up Mackenzie Weger. Didn't turn out that way. Everyone said that. Yeah, yeah, everyone said Florida lost the deal. Yeah. Or Calgary. At came out of this even. better because they got Uyghur. Totally, And a totally. pick as well, didn't they? Maybe. I don't recall. Okay, but... But I think what happened... I mean, a lot of stuff happened, obviously, right? And Markstrom being one of them. But I think Kachuk is one of those guys that clearly drags everyone else into the fight. Right? We saw it with the Florida Panthers last year, them going all the way to the Stanley Cup final. And yeah, Bobrovsky was big, but Kachuk was clearly the heart of that team. Even though Barkov is a very good captain... Kachuk's the one that's dragging everyone with him. Like, he's playing with a broken body. I argued if he had to do that draft over again, you might be taking him ahead of Austin Matthews. That's how well he was playing in the playoffs. Oh, in the playoffs, yeah. Yeah. Best American player, I said. I said, if you give me a list right now, taking Matthew Kachuk. I mean, just he, because of he that. Sh- in that playoff run, yeah, like you would want him on your team versus pretty much anybody else. But I think Calgary, for whatever reason, they do have veterans, they do have leaders, they have guys that have won the Stanley Cup, but they don't have that guy, it seems right now, dragging somebody or dragging the rest of them into the fight. Here's the thing you're in a division with Edmonton. Yeah. You're in a division with Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, Vancouver, for whatever we thought about the Canucks, they're a better team than we thought they were. I would, I would say right now on paper, I like the Canucks more than the Flames. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And then the Kings aren't going anywhere. Yeah. For a team that was supposed to age out, um, Anze Kopitar has found new life. Mm-hmm. Um, Quinton Byfield's still not playing at the level I think he can play at. Yeah, but um, he's but down the middle, incrementally they, getting there, and I think they're putting him in good spots. True. Getting yeah. Pierre Dubois, uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois is huge for them. Now they've got... Um, down the middle, they look really solid. Yeah, Dano. Yeah, Philip Dano still there. So you got one, two, three down the middle. Yeah. This Calgary Flames team, like they just seem very kind of mediocre, mushy middle. Yeah. And in that division, I think where you've got all that all-star talent, like mm-hmm. if you're not going to be a team that can go toe to toe with the Oilers and or at least punch the Oilers in the face. Yeah. You got to start rebuilding or start thinking that way, and it's just where do you go now? Yeah. You got Huberto locked up. You got Kadri locked up. Yeah. And you can say what you want about that Flames defense, but they're not good enough uh, not for that division. So far, yeah, you're right. So far this year, they, they certainly have not. Uh, let's go to a positive story right now. New Jersey's Jesper Bratt, uh, top five in NHL scoring right now. Is he the most underrated player in the league? I know New Jersey fans love him, but I, I feel like here's a guy that you don't you just don't hear that much about, and he has been producing at an excellent clip. Well, he's underrated because he plays on a team of Jack Hughes, <laughs> Nico Hishire, yeah. uh, Timo Meyer. Right. Um, am I forgetting some other like star players up front? But 
Um, well, but even having Dougie Hamilton on the back end, you know, there's another big name. Yeah, yeah like you, you really have to kind of go through. You know, Tyler Toffoli's having a great start to the year. Like yeah. a lot of these guys are sorry, bigger, Flames fans. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of big names uh, on that team and bigger names than Jesper Bratt. But yeah, I'm with you. Um, probably the most underrated player, just because. Um, of who else he's playing with. And mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to kind of steal headlines away from Jack Hughes because every day uh, Jack Hughes keeps making the argument that he's probably, you know, toe-to-toe with McDavid as the best player in the league. Yeah, and it's, it's funny too because, you know, when you look at Jesper Bratt, the Devils got him in the sixth round, 162nd overall in the 2016 draft. And, you know, he's, he's not big. You know, yes. as I kind of joke, he's basically my size, uh, but he's in much better physical condition. <laughs> let's put, let, let's just put it mildly. You know, uh, quite a bit more skilled when it comes to <laughs> hockey. He's got a great head of hair too. Yeah, well, I think I have a great head of hair too. Well, um, but I mean, he broke the thirty goal barrier last year, and he's already up to fourteen points in eight games. You know, he's got great hands. I wonder if this is just a matter of New Jersey scouts looking at the talent he had and saying, yeah, this is a kid that we think he might not be a a big bruiser, but that's not the game and and that's not where the game is going. You know, it's it's a skill game. And with his hands, I mean, he is obviously just making things happen. So I'm looking at his draft year right now and he played 48 games for AIK in uh, Sweden. He Mm -hmm. had eight goals and 17 points in 48 games. In his draft year. That's great for a teenager. Is that good? In, in Sweden, yeah. If you're playing against men. But here's the reason why yeah. you didn't, why we didn't hear about Jesper Bratt. He didn't play for internationally for Sweden at the mm. World Juniors. So I remember talking to someone about that. And it's not like you can go without playing for Team Canada or even the U.S. as a World Junior. Yeah. And it's whatever. It's the pool so deep sure. of players. But when you're talking about Finland... Sweden, Czech Republic, if you're not on a world junior team mm. in your draft year or at least under 18s and all that, it, it's very hard to kind of get on the radar. So that's probably mm. why he slipped, I'm imagining. That and the fact that, you know, talking about a guy 5'10, yeah. 175, um, probably, you know, he, he, was, he was probably a project. Yeah, fair enough. Speaking of young players, we know the vaunted nine game mark in the NHL when it comes to uh, players that have junior eligibility and they're on their entry-level contracts where the contract can slide. So if you're not going to be a full-time NHLer, your team will send you back before you hit that 10th game. We are basically at that point for a lot of young players. And we know Chicago's going to keep Connor Bedard. You know, we know that Columbus is going to keep Adam Fantilli. Uh, but Toronto already sent Fraser Minton back mm-hmm. to the WHL after he had an awesome camp for them and played some NHL games. There's a couple of interesting names that I want to throw at you. And if there's anyone else you can think of, chime in. Um, you know, I, I think we're pretty safe on Leo Carlson, even though Anaheim has you know, kept him out of games so that he can sort of watch from above and develop slowly. But, I mean, he's been great for them. But Zach Benson in Buffalo and Kevin Korchinski in Chicago, two very different scenarios. Now, Zach Benson just went on the shelf. He's got a lower body injury. Um, But once he returns, you know, he would still have the chance to play a couple of games before the Buffalo Sabres decide whether or not to send him back to the WHL where he would play for the Wenatchee Wild, who used to be called the Winnipeg Ice. Benson's not playing a ton of time when he was healthy in Buffalo. 
Do you think he plays that 10th game, or do you think they send him back? Yeah, I think he goes back. Um, just because this Buffalo team is not like the Sabres team of maybe a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you're thinking playoff, 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 and um, you, you don't have time if you're Don Granado to say, you know what, uh, I'm going to try to develop this guy and uh-huh. try to win games. Not to say that you can't do that, right. but um, when you're looking at a guy who's, you know, Zach Benson was drafted this year. It's not like totally. he's 18 years old. Um, he, he should be playing at the World Juniors for Canada. Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably the best bet for him. If you're Buffalo, you are now deep enough where you don't need a Zach Benson. Um, this isn't, like I said, a few years ago where you're saying, okay, scratching your head, who can score goals for us or who can do that for us? Mm. If you're the Buffalo Sabres, it's what's best for this prospect. How do we get him to that point where a couple years from now, um, he's going to be a legit top six forward. And uh, for me, I, I think this injury probably uh, delays a decision that they probably didn't want to make. But at the same time, um, if there's no further injuries mm-hmm. um, when he comes back in the lineup, I can't imagine he stays. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think that it would be great for him to, to play a big role in Team Canada because that World Junior squad, it's going to be wide open. Like, Why do you say that? Well, because there's barely any returning players. Basically, Owen Beck and Kevin Korczynski would be the only possibilities outside of Bedard and Fantilli, who we know are not going to be there. Mm. So there's going to be tons of players that will be on their first Canadian World Junior team. I think Benson should be there for sure. Matt Savoy, his Buffalo compatriot, should be there. And ironically, yeah. Connor Geeky, the Arizona pick, all of them are Wenatchee Wild property. Geeky and Savoy, weren't they linemates? I believe they were, and I, I think Benson probably played with either one or both of them last year at some points as well. So I think all three Wenatchee players should be there. But Kevin Korczynski is an interesting scenario because he's playing good minutes. Playing with Seth Jones yeah. most nights. Yeah, so he's, he's getting top four minutes in Chicago, and they don't have a lot of guys banging on the door from a veteran perspective. It's not like they have a lot of depth back there. So if you send Korczynski back to the WHL, you're essentially going to replace him with probably an Ethan Del Mastro, a Nolan Allen, somebody else who's just beginning their pro career. Uh, so for me, I kind of wonder if the Hawks keep Korczynski. What, are you, what do you think? Well, Korczynski is a 2022 draft, right? Uh, he is, but he would yeah. still have to go back to the Seattle Thunderbirds of the WHL. Okay, so he's got that extra year of development. Yeah. Um, aside from Benson, who was drafted this year. Um, Correct. Where, you know, he, he hasn't played as much. Mm. Also, Benson's like 5'9", like 160 pounds. Yeah. So I don't, I don't even know how he's even handling the playing in the NHL right now. It's a tribute to Zach Benson that he was <laughs> able to crack that squad in the first place. And I see Korchinski, and it's just like he's noticeable on the ice. Like I said, he's playing with Jones on some nights, if not more rec- recently. Granted, he's playing for a team that is at the bottom of the standings, and yeah. I think that actually matters because... You know, you can afford to have Korchinski out there, and as long as you're not, like, watching this guy just completely just getting his teeth kicked in right. night after night, and you're going, geez, for the sake of the kid, get him in a winning environment. Yeah. So here's what I, th- I think happens, and I think you're the one who brought this up. Korchinski lasts beyond the nine-game mark. Mm-hmm. He gets loaned to Team Canada, and he's back right. up versus Benson, I think, is going back to the dub yeah. when uh, his injury uh, heals up, and we don't see him again. Yeah, fair enough. And also, I'll point out, 
Kevin Korczynski with that Seattle Thunderbirds team last year. They won the WHL championship, went all the way to the Memorial Cup final. So he has had that championship experience. He's got nothing else <laughs> to play for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so we are going to a, uh, a new segment right now. It is the Young Gun of the Week. Since we are talking Upper Deck and we will have... Some more Upper Deck coverage coming up afterwards. But uh, Series 1 of the Upper Deck cards out now. And uh, Big Draw, obviously, is the Young Guns. So I'm going to talk briefly about Luke Evangelista for the Nashville Predators. He is one of the Young Guns featured in Series 1. Evangelista, always been an interesting player to me because he came up with the London Knights. And in the OHL... London has just been a prospect machine since the Hunter brothers took over years ago. And when Evangelista was in his draft year, he didn't necessarily get a ton of ice time, but he was trusted by the coaching staff. They liked that he was responsible, but he had offense. They could play him up and down the lineup. And you knew that the next season, when some of the players on that team had graduated to the pros or or gone elsewhere, he would have a bigger role. So Nashville snaps him up in the draft, and, you know, he's had sort of a nice little ascent to the NHL, and this year I think is sort of a big year for him where he's getting second-line minutes on a sort of a kid line with Tommy Novak and Kiefer Sherwood. Uh, Five points in his first eight games, and uh, just a a really interesting player in in my estimation where it, it seems like he's found a role as a middle six guy already. And now it's a matter of making sure he can stay up because he did split last year between Nashville and Milwaukee in the AHL. Yeah, you know what? And, you know, Evangelista was drafted in 2020. And I think if you're a Preds fan, the, the main guy that you picked that year was uh, Yaroslav Askarov, the goaltender, who mm-hmm. very much looks like he's going to be the successor uh, to UC Saros. We'll see if that happens. But mm-hmm. to get Evangelista in the second round of that draft, Huge for them. Um, I'm with you. Anyone that you get at a London program, you know you're going to get a pro style of development, and you're going to get a guy who, uh, let's face it, you don't play for London <laughs> by accident. Right. Like they, they seek out, and you talk to the hunters about this. Like they, they were the first kind of guys who, you know, play skill, uh, oversized. They um, they're the ones who took chances chances on a Mitch Marner or Max Domi. Yeah. Uh, they like that kind of player. So um, it doesn't surprise me that you know Nashville might have a star on their hand. Yeah. And to that point, if I'm not mistaken, when Mitch Marner was actually drafted by London in the OHL draft, he was like 5'7", 130 pounds. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was like small, small. Yeah, it's not the Mitch Marner we see today. No. Like, it was tiny. I remember uh, uh, Mark Hunter saying to us when we were talking about uh, Marner at the draft, uh, the NHL draft, is um, he just looked at his dad and his mom and said, oh, okay, your mom's tall. <laughs> right. So we, we should be in good shape there here. There you go. Yeah. I love how throughout the industry, whether it's NHL or, or junior hockey, Scouts and GMs looking at a player's parents is like an actual thing where they're like, okay, well, the dad's tall or the mom's tall. I was like, okay, we should be fine here. It'll be okay. And I do remember at the draft one year standing behind Jamie Alexiak's dad, mm. and he is somehow taller than Jamie Alexiak. Really? Yes. His dad is like 6'9", six, 6'10". Six, Insane. There okay. you go. And then Penny Alexiak, obviously pretty tall as well, the Olympic school. They should be looking Canada. at his sister. Yeah, exactly. There you go. All right, so that is your Upper Deck Young Gun of the Week. 
And we are joined now by a special guest from Upper Deck. We have Paul Zickler, Senior Sports Brand Manager. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Definitely. Now, uh, Paul, Upper Deck Series 1, always something fans look forward to. What is it about this year's series that you think people are going to get the most excited about? Well, uh, we, you know, we actually went through a significant reconfiguration of the product uh, this year. So um, for more than 20 years, the product had been eight cards per pack, 24 packs per box and one insert per pack. And this year we completely changed it. It went for to 12 cards per pack, 12 packs per box and three insert cards per pack. So there's a ton of new content. There's thicker packs, um, you know, but it's something that we haven't done in more than 20 years. So, um, you know, a lot of planning and, and strategic thinking went involved and we were just excited to bring sort of the refreshed brand to the market this year. Nice. And the one-on-one -on -one series for Young Guns, uh, tell us about that because that sounds pretty intriguing. Yeah, so, um, you know, with the reconfiguration, we actually launched uh, four new base set parallels. Um, and, um, you know, two of those were called the Outburst Red and then the Outburst Gold, which you just noted. And it's on a really unique substrate called Wavefront. It looks unbelievable. And uh, to your point there, the Gold Outburst are numbered to one of one. Uh, so it's the first time ever in the brand's history that we've had a one-of-one -one young gun. And uh, we're excited to see, you know, bringing those to market and, and how collectors uh, react to those. Now, I understand, Paul, that uh, when Upper Deck released its, like, flagship Series 1, um, Connor Bedard's name was nowhere to be found on the checklist. And yet, uh, here we are. Uh, I understand uh, some Easter eggs have been found uh, since then. What can you tell us about the, the much sought after Bedard's card? Yeah, that's a good point. You, you mentioned about um, Connor Bedard and in, in, in not uh, originally being planned into Series 1. Listen, during COVID and all the production challenges and delays and, um, you know, just how popular trading cards became, you know, there was no way of us keeping that sort of fall release date um, and leaving the new skating young guns in the product. So... Just consistent with the last couple of years, what you'll notice is that a lot of the young guns in the checklist are from holdovers like Matthew Nyes that you sort of mentioned prior to this call or Brock Faber, uh, Luke Hughes. Those are the rookies you see in there. And then obviously Connor's uh, young gun will be in series uh, two. Um, but that being said, um, you know, we worked some magic and we did get an SP short print of Connor Bedard into um the product this year, it's a draft day variant of the base card. Um, it shows him walking uh, just shortly after um, his number one pick and uh, shows him with the, his, him holding up the number one, the number one sign. So um, it's in all SKUs and retail's actually going live tomorrow. Um, but that's been a huge uh, win with collectors. They're really excited that we found a way to make it happen and kudos to our team because uh, we had to basically move some big boulders to get that done, and uh, everyone's been excited about that. Excellent. And, and in general, you know, whether it's the Young Guns uh, or, or anything else, you know, obviously you do have multiple series throughout the year. How do you decide who goes where if, if you don't have, you know, uh, 
the, the photography issues of making sure you get the right shots of the guy beforehand? Yeah, no. So you, you, typically, as you mentioned, our flagship brand has three releases, Series 1, which we're talking about, Series 2, you know, March timing, and then extended series in May, June. So, um, you know, it is a lot of rookies to, to sort of include. And really, it comes down to how many rookies actually skate during the year. So, um, you know, we noted, obviously, with the, with the production lead time with Series 1, but the majority of those new skating rookies will be in series two, including Connor Bedard. And then maybe uh, with the strength of this year's rookie class, maybe there'll be one or two sort of key rookies that will show up in extended. We'll just have to see how it plays out. Paul mentioned the, the Bedard variant, Ryan, and I thought uh, we might see Bedard in maybe an Anaheim Ducks jersey. I guess that's not what he was talking about. Right, but, right. Um, do you have a favorite uh, rare card from this series? Uh, that you you can share with us? Um, honestly, I'm a really big fan of the new um, base set parallels, specifically the red outburst and the gold outburst. I think they just look fantastic. Uh, extremely bright, extremely shiny, and obviously, um, you know, it um, goes to show with the one of one just how popular they are. But really what I'm most excited about this year in general is just the strength of the rookie class. Um, you know, I've been back at Upper Deck since 2017, and I can honestly say that this is the strongest class uh, that I've had privy of working with. Um, not only the holdovers, which are highlighted by Luke Hughes, Matthew Nyes, Dustin Wolf, Brock Faber, um, you know, but we have unbelievable talent um, with the new skaters, obviously Connor and Fantilli headline it, but Logan Cooley is unbelievable. I got to see him play in Melbourne, and I think he's a dark horse for the Calder, um, as well as Leo Carlson. So I'm just really excited about this class, and obviously we'll get to highlight them um, in Upper Deck flagship brands throughout the year. Indeed, and you know, speaking of Logan Cooley, he was one of a number of players that were at the Upper Deck Rookie Showcase uh, in Arlington, Virginia, just across from Washington, D.C. This summer, I had a chance to attend that event. It's always been a fun one for me, uh, no matter where you've had it in the past. But how much fun is it for, for all of you at Upper Deck, where you have all these rookies come in, they've got the different stations where they're on ice and you're taking photos there, they're off ice, you're doing photos there. Uh, they obviously talk to us media. That was almost its own little station this year. Um, but how much fun is it? To, to have that day where you've got them all in their NHL jerseys and uh, and pads, for that matter, the, the full uniform, uh, where you get to take photos and, and interact with them. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun and uh, also a lot of work. But, um, you know, that's the fun part about our business is that everyone is gets excited uh, for the new NHL season and uh, obviously get to, to be such a big part of that with our trading card products. It's just really fun to be a part of. Um, you know, there's that, um, you know, you can kind of see it too in the players, just uh, the excitement that they have, you know, putting on the uniforms for the first time and signing sort of autographs uh, and, um, you know, their first trading cards that, that are going to be coming out. You know, I think that that's really the the unique thing about it is, is, you know, I think that they're just as excited as we are, you know, because it's such a big accomplishment of uh, them making it at the highest level. 
And then also on our side, um, you know, it's really sets the stage for the season, not only with the photography, but the autographs, but we also get to in, uh, engage with them and create some unique marketing elements that really promotes and sets the stage for our hockey calendar. Hey, Paul, when I got into card collecting, I remember not caring so much about cards value and, you know, trying to make money off it. But obviously this has become a, a sort of big business for a lot of collectors. To that end, uh, how important is the authentication process when it comes to, you know, say if you found yourself one of those Bedard Easter egg cards? Yeah, no, it's extremely important. And obviously, as you know, and, and this goes down the history of memorabilia and trading cards is that as the values and sort of interest goes up, which we've seen in COVID, there's obviously more fraudulent and sort of misrepresentation in the market. And so something that we obviously take pride on is our authentication system, both on um, uh, process, sorry, in terms of trading cards and memorabilia. And so you'll always find in our Upper Deck flagship brand that sort of hologram security foil on the back of each card. And uh, that's where you know uh, it's an authentic Upper Deck product. So we take that very seriously. Um, you know, obviously our collectors are investing hard-earned dollars and, and some of their uh, discretionary income to enjoy the hobby. And we want to make sure that we really um, keep that top of mind and ensure that authenticity. Excellent. Well, Paul, thanks so much for joining us. It's always fun to rip open a pack of hockey cards, and it, it has been since we were kids. So we really appreciate your time, and good luck with Series 1. Thank you so much. Really appreciate time. Pleasure meeting you guys. And now it's time for the best, the little feature we do every week that just charts some of the things that we think are the best in the hockey world. And since it is Halloween today when we are recording, I'm going to go with the most... Scary slash Halloweeny or uh, hockey team name. So not not just NHL, but I do have an NHL team in there. Uh, but for example, one of my favorites when I was looking for Jersey Hound for the magazine over the years, there's a team uh, from Latvia. They're not around anymore, but they were called ASK Ogre. Ooh. Yes. And so I always joked it was Ask Ogre, but it was it was ASK. And their mascot was a beaver biting through a hockey stick. But Ogre is actually. A town in Latvia, apparently. So, how's it spelled? O G R E. O G R E. Cool. Just like the mythical creatures. No umlauts or anything like that. No umlauts whatsoever. So, ask Ogre. I always like that one. Uh, second one. I'm actually going to go with the New Jersey Devils. And a common misconception is why they're called the Devils. And it, the actual story is that the Jersey Devil is a mythological creature in that area, in that region that has been part of folklore for like centuries. And it is sometimes seen as a goat-like creature with wings. And there's a whole history behind it. It apparently resides in the Pine Barrens. So if you watched The Sopranos, you might know about the Pine Barrens. Uh, apparently that's where the Jersey Devil comes from and that's why they are called the New Jersey Devils. Nice. I don't know if I have any as good as that. Like I was gonna say Seattle Kraken, just cause Kraken's, yeah, that's a good monstrous one. It's, you don't want to run into a Kraken if you're swimming in you know, Lake Ontario or anything. <laughs> or Puget Sound, as it would be. It's, <laughs> yeah, certainly not. All right, this one, this might be the most intense one. And I actually, I was hanging out with a Montreal Canadiens uh, beat writer a while ago who translated this for me because I was always fascinated. There's a team in France called the Grenoble. I would say Grenoble because I have, you know, 
English is you my language. You and I were language. both, I think, in, uh, in university-level French, which was not university-level. Exactly, level. yeah, but I'm sure it's Grenoble. <laughs> they are the Bruyère de Loup, which translates into wolf burners. Ooh. And the story behind that one is that, like, way back a long time ago, probably a couple of centuries, the people in that, like, town, village, or whatever it was back then, you know, they had a wolf problem. They would gather them up and burn them, which is really <laughs> harsh. God damn it. But now... <laughs> The team is named the Wolf Burners, and the mascot is like a wolf with half its face on fire. But here's the thing. They make little plushies for the kids <laughs> that have that, and it's like somehow kind of cute. Uh, but that's the most intense name I've ever come across so in hockey. You, so you mentioned the mascot. What was it? Was it the Calgary Flames AHL affiliate? Had the yes. Sto- what was it? The well, they were Stockton Heat? Am yeah, I, I think it was when they were the Heat, because they've had a couple of names. And it was based on like some... Like fire, where a lot of people died, and well, then the was, mascot was a flame. Yeah, well, there was something about him and firefighters. I remember there was a big to do about that. Yeah, yeah. anything that that's fun. like a haunted name, I kind of yeah. feel like that shouldn't be allowed. Like it's, right, like you're just asking for trouble. Right. But, well, um, the Atlanta Flames. I mean, that's why they were called that. So there was a big fire in Atlanta way back when. And, but I think their soccer team's called that, the, the, like the Atlanta Fire now or something like that. So apparently people in Atlanta don't care about that. Uh, speaking of ghosts, my next one here, the Savannah Ghost Pirates, a, uh, mm. a newish ECHL team with a fantastic logo and color scheme. And uh, Edward Fraser, the uh, managing editor of the Hockey News, made the greatest point is that the reason the Ghost Pirates are so awesome is it's not a pirate who's a ghost, it's a ghost who's a pirate. It's a ghost wearing a pirate hat. As opposed to a pirate that became a ghost, it's a ghost that decided to become a pirate. Uh, That one, they got a very cute mascot, but I love their color scheme and I love that name. Uh, And then the last one, going out to Austria in Linz, the Black Wings, which is just a fantastic Halloween name. They're not the Red Wings, they're the Black Wings. Black Wings. So yeah. like a bat, basically. I guess so. It sounds like a High on Fire album to me. So, uh, <laughs> well, Blessed Black Wings was a High on Fire album. So there you go. So that is the best for this week. Uh, best Halloween-ish hockey teams. Feel free to contribute your own if you uh, tag at the Hockey News on Twitter. And now we're going to go to Rapid Fire. Mike, I'm in charge of Rapid Fire Ooh. this week. And let's start off with a Halloween question. What was your favorite Halloween candy when you were a kid? Why, why a kid? Why, can't, why are you limiting it to that? Well, I guess because tastes can change, but if it's the same answer, go with the same answer. I'm, I'm gonna, it's always the same. It's, it's got to have a peanut in it. So oh, for yeah. me, it's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Nice. Uh, second favorite, it's got to be Reese's Pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, third favorite, uh, I don't know, maybe Snickers. Snickers very solid. Yeah. I was gonna say that. I would say like those are all great ones for me now. But when I was a kid, it was always fun to get the rockets because oh, yeah. that's something that you wouldn't just buy at a convenience store by yourself. Like I would go buy Reese's peanut butter cups, but Halloween was for rockets. And for our American listeners, they're different. I didn't realize this until recently, but Canadian rockets, which are basically like tiny, just like, like sugar capsules. Basically. Yeah, but they they don't have them in the states, or they're called something else. Called Smarties. That's right. Yeah. And our Smarties are like uh, our M&M's. M&M's, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But we also and, have M&M's. And the factory that makes Rockets is in my uh, town on Newmarket. 
There you go. Yeah, home of Connor McDavid and, uh, and Rockets. The best Halloween candy, apparently. Perfect. All right. Might as well stay on the, the Halloween tip. What's the last, or I should say, most recent scary movie that you saw? Oh, okay. So is I don't know. We're getting my wife and I are debating this if this is technically a Halloween movie. But Interview with the Vampire, we just watched uh, yeah. last weekend, and I don't know if that's a. Uh, it's a scary movie. Oh, horror it's movie. Vampires. The best one I saw recently, um, Bodies with uh, Pete Davidson. Oh, okay. Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Okay, yeah. Which is just um, I don't want to spoil it, but it's basically. There are bodies. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's like a game gone wrong. Basically. Gotcha, gotcha. Really cool ending. Uh, really good. I love horror movies, though. So nice. I try to watch them even non-Halloween season. There you go. We watched Mandy the other night, which is Nicolas Cage. Okay. And uh, it came out, like I guess, like a year or two ago. And basically, like him and his wife live kind of out in the woods, and there's like this like crazy cult. And again, I won't you know, spoil it, but there's a rampage. Okay. <laughs> there's a Nicolas Cage rampage. There's a lot of blood. Uh, the soundtrack's incredible. There's like lots of synth, but they also got one of the guitarists from Sun O, the really dirgy metal band. Okay. So the music's incredible. Visually, it looks in just stunning. Lots of cool lighting and stuff. He's enjoying a nice renaissance. He is, and there's a chainsaw fight. Oh, so perfect. Not the first chainsaw fight I've seen, but a very good one, nonetheless. And I just saw Renfield with him. Oh, that was fun too. Yeah, is that, that a horror exactly movie or no? Yeah, horror comedy. Yeah. yeah. I feel like if you've got like a Dracula type of figure in it, it should yeah. be horror. And a lot of gore, which Renfield also had. That's the thing with Interview with the Vampire. A lot of blood in that one. I, I don't remember it being as gory as it was, yeah. but just obviously it's vampires, so I'm, I'm kind of a fool to think that there wouldn't be blood. But vampires got to eat. They got to eat. They gotta All drink. right. Moving on. Okay, we got, we got some music here. Now, Mike, you are famously a huge fan of the Pixies, mm-hmm. the incredibly influential band. Uh, what is your favorite Pixie song of all time? I think it might be the same one that you are going to probably pick is Alec Eiffel. Yes. I love that one. Yes. I uh, love the drums. I love the keyboards afterwards. Uh, what I don't love is the Pixies were going through, obviously, their divorce at the time, uh-huh. and Kim Deal doesn't sing on that track. Was supposed oh. to, to try to convince her, and uh, went back and forth, and it's actually uh, Black Francis at the time singing lead and backup vocals. Wow. So he's doing the falsetto. Good there's little a trivia little, there. There's a little trivia. Yeah. And she was supposed to sing uh, Bird Dream of the Olympus Mons on that album. Again, the whole friction. Didn't want to give it to her. Huh. So because of that, she said, uh-uh, I'm not singing on Alec Eiffel. Still a great track, though. It really is. And it's kind of funny, like, uh, I like the Pixies, all, uh, not to the extent you do, but no, I always no, find, No like, one likes them to the extent I do. <laughs> right, right. I always find, I, like, with bands, I, if I only listen to, like, some of their stuff, I always gravitate to the faster song. And Alec Eiffel is one of their more up-tempo songs. But, yeah, the way it just kind of spirals at the end, I love that. Yeah. Uh, related nice keyboards. Song. Yep, the keyboards, it's all, it's all great. <laughs> related, related question, the Breeders or Frank Black solo, like, man in black kind of thing? Who would you, if you, if you only had to pick one, who would you go with? Well, it's, for me, I, I don't know. I, I'm a huge Frank Black fan. There's no wrong answer. Yeah, so 100% Frank Black. Mm. Not to say that the Breeders uh, post-Pixies weren't amazing. Obviously, Steve Albini produces their first album, Pod. After that, they, 
hit it out of the park with uh, Last Splash, yep. which just got re-released. Uh, there's a Jay Maskus uh, uh, song on there as well, nice. um, as well as another unreleased song that her and Black Francis wrote before the whole uh, divorce, uh, so to speak. Ooh. So uh, you can't really go wrong. For sure. I love Kim Deal's vocals. A huge reason why I play the bass guitar. Nice. So um, yeah, I love all bass-driven bands, nice. I find. Nice. I'm going to go with The Breeders. Uh, I agree, Last Splash, an incredible album. The one track that people don't talk about enough, in my estimation, is No Aloha. Mm. You know, because you think about Cannonball being the big single, and like nope. Saints was a good single, but the guitars on No Aloha just sound so awesome. You know what's funny? Saints was sampled by The Prodigy. Um, Interesting. On, uh, What's their big hit? Firestarter. Really? Yeah. Oh, Royalties yeah. go to the uh, breeders for that. So I think they're still picking up checks at the, nice. in the mailbox for that one. There you go. And final question of the rapid fire. How many hockey jerseys do you own? I've got two hockey jerseys. Both are Leafs. Both are Wendell Clark. Home wow. and away. Nice. <laughs> Can't get enough of that. Wow. Uh, a couple years ago, I went as Wendell Clark uh, for Halloween. Yep. Um, when Wendell Clark got his jersey um, hung up in the rafters, they gave every fan in the building kind of like a souvenir mustache that you could wear at the game. Nice. They also gave it to media, and I picked up a couple of extra ones. Right. Saved it for years because <laughs> we're talking, I think, maybe 10 years later, I went as Wendell Clark for Halloween, wore the mustache, wore the jersey, Excellent. put it on an old school bucket. Excellent. How Very good. I know you've got a lot of basketball jerseys. Any hockey jerseys? Uh, you, you know what's funny? I don't really have any basketball jerseys anymore, but I have... I think I probably have about eight or nine hockey jerseys, and they are completely random. Like, I have a Thief River Falls high school, like, vintage jersey from Minnesota. Okay. Uh, and then I have, like, a Laredo Bucks jersey, because I think when they folded, they were like, everything's on sale. Mm -hmm. So I got one of those. I have, like, an El Paso Rhinos jersey. I have a couple of old-school NHL jerseys. I have, like, the the Marcel Dion era Kings jersey. And, nice. like, I have the Rangers jersey that everyone else hates. The one that has the actual... The Liberty? No. The one that has the crest on, like the actual Rangers crest that's usually on the shoulder. Uh, okay. Like the sort of Ron Greshner, I think, maybe era. But I love that one. I think it's really cool. Any so. names on the back? No. I've never had a name on the back of a jersey. Yeah. It's, it's funny now because th there's that debate if, like, if you're a certain age, should you have a name on a jersey? And it's... The, I guess the rule of thumb is if you're older than the player, you're not allowed to wear it. <laughs> so Wendell Clark's still older than me. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good rule. I like that. All right. Well, that was Rapid Fire, Mike. Thanks so much for doing that. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. This has been the Hockey News Podcast, brought to you by Upper Deck. I am Ryan Kennedy. I think I said that already. Yeah. But hey. You're still Ryan Kennedy. I'm yeah. still Ryan Kennedy. If you want to hear this or any of our other podcasts, go to THN.com slash podcasts. And we'll see you later.